Welcome to Learning English, a daily 30-minute program from the Voice of America. I'm Jonathan Evans. And I'm Ashley Thompson. This program is aimed at English learners, so we speak a little slower and we use words and phrases especially written for people learning English. Today on the program, Ashley and I will bring you stories along with Katie Weaver and Alice Bryant. Later, we will present part two of O. Henry's Hearts and Crosses in American Stories. But first, Joaquin El Chapo Guzman has a record of breaking out of prisons. The head of an illegal drugs organization escaped from two high-security Mexican prisons before being captured and taken to the United States for a trial. Last week, a U.S. federal court found El Chapo guilty of buying, selling, and transporting illegal drugs. Since Guzman is likely to receive a life sentence, where will the U.S. imprison someone like him? Experts say Guzman will likely serve his sentence at the federal government's Supermax prison in Florence, Colorado. The prison is also known as Administrative Maximum, or ADX. It is so secure and removed from society that it has been called the Alcatraz of the Rockies. Alcatraz was a highly secure federal prison on an island off the coast of San Francisco. ADX is located outside an old mining town about two hours south of Colorado's capital of Denver. The prison houses the nation's most violent offenders. Many of its 400 prisoners are held alone for 23 hours a day in 2.1 by 3.7 meter cells. The few objects in the cells are made of concrete. Cameron Lindsay had run three federal prisons, including the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn. He said, I'd be absolutely shocked if he's not sent to the ADX. In 2015, Guzman escaped from the maximum security Atiplano prison in central Mexico. In that case, he communicated with helpers outside the prison for weeks using mobile phones. Guzman escaped through an opening beneath his shower. He then rode on the back of a waiting motorcycle through a 1.6-kilometer-long passageway to freedom. In 2001, Guzman got out of another top-security Mexican prison in a laundry basket. Mike Vigil is a former U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration agent. He said that Guzman had to have had help from people working in the prisons in order to escape. He added, There is no doubt corruption played a role in both of his spectacular escapes. Bob Hood was a former warden of ADX Florence. 
He told the television program Inside Edition, no one has escaped so far since 1994 when they opened. A report by the non-governmental organization Amnesty International found that prisoners at ADX often go days with only a few words spoken to them. Most prisoners at ADX are given a television, but their only view of the outside world is through a 10-centimeter window. The window's design prevents them from even knowing where they are housed in the prison. There is little contact with other human beings. Prisoners eat all meals in their individual cells, less than one meter from their toilets. The prison itself is guarded by sharp-edged wire fences, gunmen in tall structures, heavily armed guards, and attack dogs. Burl Kane is a former warden of the Maximum Security Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola. He said, if ever there were an escape-proof prison, it's the facility at Florence. It's the prison of all prisons. Federal officials have not said for certain where El Chapo will be housed. But U.S. Attorney Richard Donahue said after last week's verdict that Guzman faces, in his words, a sentence from which there is no escape and no return. It may sound sickening to some of you, but many people can and do eat insects. Edible insects are a great source of high-quality protein and minerals known to be important to good health, like calcium and iron. Insect larvae, or young, offer all that as well as high-quality fat, which is good for brain development. Insects are food in many parts of the world, but not in the United States. In the U.S., concerns about and even fear of the creatures mean serving insects as meals is extremely rare. But that is starting to change. Wendy Lou McGill is opening a shipping container in a community just outside Denver, Colorado. She steps into a little room that is lined with small white boxes. Machines keep the room's temperature around 26 degrees Celsius. The relative humidity, or level of wetness in the air, is 80%. The conditions are just right 
for the extremely small creatures McGill is raising, mealworms. Rocky Mountain Micro Ranch is Colorado's first and only edible insect farm. We raise crickets and mealworms to sell to restaurants and food manufacturers. The United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization has said that the world's demand for protein from beef and even chicken is unsustainable. Protein from bugs is one possible solution. McGill grows nearly 275 kilograms of insects every month. She feeds them crushed, wet grain. A carrot supplies their water needs. Each mealworm is about half the size of the smallest finger on a human hand. Thousands of the insects bend and move in each shallow container. I want to be part of trying to figure out how to feed ourselves better as we have less land and water and a hotter planet and more people to feed. Visiting McGill's micro ranch today are Terry Coling and his grandchildren. Andrew is almost five years old and Zora is nearly three. Like most Americans, they have never, ever eaten a bug. They do not seem to want to try one now, either. I don't think they are very appealing as far as uh, something you put in your mouth. And you see them around dead things, and uh, it just doesn't appeal to me to eat something that seems to be so wild. Another visitor to the insect farm already likes the idea of using bugs as food. I'm Amy Franklin, and I'm founder of a nonprofit called Farms for Orphans. And what we do is farm bugs for food, because in other countries where we work, they're really, really popular food. Franklin works in the Democratic Republic of Congo. In its markets, people sell live, wild-caught crickets and African palm weevil larvae to eat. These wild insects are only plentiful seasonally. Franklin says some Congolese orphanages grow African palm weevil larvae year-round in shipping containers. Most of the orphanages don't own any land. There really is no opportunity for them to grow a garden or to raise chickens. Insects are a protein source that they can grow in a very small space. Andrew and Zora are still unsure. To get them a little more used to the idea of insect protein, McGill brings out a small container filled with mealworms that have been cooked and salted. I taste. So. <laughs> Can I just taste one? Yeah, one. Totally. It's really crispy and salty. Tastes kind of crunchy and kind of yummy. Bugs also taste yummy at Linger, a Denver restaurant where Sean Bruno prepares gourmet grubs. Jeremy Kittleson is Linger's food director. He says the restaurant is working 
to change American food interests. As much as we love beef, there's no scientist, there's no environmentalist that's going to tell you cattle farming is a sustainable practice. We should eat more insects. As his grandchildren watch disbelievingly, Coling tries the cricket soba noodle dish. With a surprised look of pleasure, he says he likes the crickets. Kind of like a hard raisin. The season is great. Huh. I'm kind of surprised. Amy Franklin gives a toast with a forkful of noodles and crickets. I'm Katie Weaver. Honnold lives life dangerously. Honnold, who is 33, is one of the best-known free solo rock climbers in the world. That means he climbs huge rock faces hundreds of meters up, alone and without any safety equipment. Now, one of his riskiest climbs the 900-meter-high El Capitan rock formation in Yosemite National Park is taking him to the Academy Awards. A film about the 2017 climb has been nominated for a Best Documentary Oscar. It is called Free Solo. It looks at Honnold's experience of preparing for and ascending El Capitan, one of the most famous climbing places in the United States. Many climbers make it their goal to ascend the huge wall. But most of them use the usual rock climbing equipment that helps keep them from falling to the ground. The extreme danger of Honnold's climb and the ever-present possibility of death causes great fear for those around Honnold in the film. Even an extremely small misstep of his foot or misplacement of a finger could have sent Honnold falling to his death. Honnold himself finds it all liberating. He said free solo climbing lets him lose that sense of self, just being fully present in what I'm actually doing, just doing the moves, Honnold told the Reuters news agency. At the center of the documentary is the problem that filmmakers Jimmy Chin and Elizabeth Chai Vasarhelyi struggled with during production, whether recording Honnold's climb would make it more risky for him or lead him to take chances he would not normally take. We trusted him. We also trusted our own judgment, Vasarhelyi said. 
but we had to address the ethical question. And that's why we include the filmmaking, so that audiences can understand what we were struggling with. The filmmakers put cameras at the most difficult points of the climb so they would not affect Honold's attention. And they had special long-distance cameras on the ground. But camera operators still had to film much of Honold's climb while connected to the side of the rock face with ropes. Vasarhelyi said the comment she hears most is how inspiring the film is. We've been just humbled by this outpouring from audiences saying that Alex's courage gives them courage and that they're inspired to pursue their dreams, she said. The Oscars will be presented on February 24th at a ceremony in Los Angeles, California. In today's Ask a Teacher, our reader Leopoldo asks about three commonly confused travel words. Here is the question. Hi, can you explain when it is correct to use trip, journey, or travel? Thank you for your answer. Hello, Leopoldo. Are you traveling anytime soon? If so, where are you going on your trip? I hope the journey goes smoothly and that you have a great time. Did you note how I used the words? I used travel as a verb and the other two words as nouns. That is how we use them most often. Now we will explore each word beginning with travel. Travel is a verb that means to go to a place and especially one that is far away. Far can mean long distances within the same country or to other countries. For instance, I have a friend who travels abroad a lot for work. Travel can also be a noun that relates to the act or activity of traveling in general. For instance, the future of U.S. travel is not likely to include high-speed rail. A common mistake with travel is confusing it with trip, like this. I bought this souvenir on my travel to California. We rarely use travel with my, your, a, or other determiners. The word trip is a noun that means the act of going to another place and returning. For example, I bought this souvenir on my trip to California. We also often use the verbs go on or take with trip, like this. I took a long trip to California last year. And 
We say things like day trip, business trip, and road trip to describe different kinds of trips. We do not use the word as a verb for travel. The word journey is a noun that means the act of going from one place to another. But we use it in two specific ways. One is to talk about a trip that takes a long time, especially if there are either difficulties or discoveries in transit. For instance, I hope to take a journey across America by car one day. The other is to talk about a trip that does not involve physical distance, but instead is a process of learning or self-discovery, as in this. A 10-day vipassana is a kind of spiritual journey. We rarely use journey as a verb, except in some styles of writing. And that's Ask a Teacher. I'm Alice Bryant. Hearts and Crosses. One day, a man named Bartholomew, not an important man, stopped at the Nopalito Ranch House. It was noon, and he was hungry. He sat down at the dinner table. While he was eating, he talked. Mrs. Yeager, he said, I saw a man on the Seco Ranch with your name, Webb Yeager. He was foreman there. He was a tall, yellow-haired man. Not a talker. Someone of your family? A husband, said Santa. That is fine for the Seco Ranch. Mr. Yeager is the best foreman in the West. Everything at the Nopalito Ranch had been going well. For several years, they'd been working at the Nopalito with a different kind of cattle. These cattle had been brought from England, and they were better than the usual Texas cattle. They had been successful at the Nopalito Ranch, and men on the other ranches were interested in them. As a result, one day a cowboy arrived at the Nopalito Ranch and gave the queen this letter. Mrs. Yeager, the Nopalito Ranch. I've been told by the owners of the Seiko Ranch to buy 100 of your English cattle. If you can sell these to the Seiko, send them to us in care of the man who brings this letter. We will then send you the money. Webb Yeager, foreman, Seiko Ranch. Business is business to a queen as it is to others. That night, the 100 cattle were moved near the ranch house, ready for an early start the next morning. When the night came and the house was quiet, did Santa Yeager cry alone? Did she hold that letter near to her heart? Did she speak the name that she had been too proud to speak for many weeks? Or did she place the letter with other business letters in her office? I ask if you will, but there is no answer. What a queen does is something we cannot always know. But this you shall be told. In the middle of the night, Santa went quietly out of the ranch house. She was dressed in something dark, 
she stopped for a moment under a tree. There was moonlight, and a bird was singing. There was a smell of flowers. Santa turned her face toward the southeast and threw three kisses in that direction. But there was no one to see her. Then she hurried quietly to a small building. What she did there we can only guess. But there was the red light of a fire and noise as if Cupid might be making his arrows. Later she came out with some strange iron tool in one hand. In the other hand she carried something that held a small fire. She hurried in the moonlight to the place where the English cattle had been gathered. Most of the English cattle were a dark red, but among those one hundred there was one as white as milk. And now Santa caught that white animal as cowboys catch cattle. She tried once and failed. Then she tried again, and the animal fell heavily. Santa ran to it, but the animal jumped up. Again she tried, and this time she was successful. The animal fell to earth again. Before it could rise, Santa had tied its feet together. Then she ran to the fire she had carried here. From it she took that strange iron tool. It was white hot. There was a loud cry from the animal as the white-hot iron burned its skin. But no one seemed to hear. All the ranch were quiet. And in the deep night quiet, Santa ran back to the ranch house and there fell onto a bed. She let the tears from her eyes, as if queens had hearts like the hearts of ranchmen's wives, and as if a queen's husband might become a king if he would ride back again. In the morning, the young man who had brought the letter started toward the Seiko Ranch. He had cowboys with him to help him with the English cattle. It was ninety miles, six days' journey. The animals arrived at Seiko Ranch one evening as the daylight was ending. They were received and counted by the foreman of the ranch. The next morning at eight, a horseman came riding to the Nopalito Ranch House. He got down painfully from the horse and walked to the house. His horse took a great breath and let his head hang and closed his eyes. But did not feel sorry for Belshazzar, the horse. Today, he lives happily at Nopalito, where he is given the best care and the best food. No other horse there has ever carried a man for such a ride. The horseman entered the house. Two arms fell around his neck, and someone cried out in the voice of a woman and queen together, Webb! Oh, Webb! I was wrong, said Webb Yeager. I was a... and he named a small animal with a bad smell, an animal no one likes. Quiet, said Santa. Did you see it? I saw it, said Webb. What were they speaking of? Perhaps you can guess if you have read the story carefully. Be the cattle queen, said Webb. Forget what I did if you can. I was wrong as... Quiet, said Santa again, putting her fingers upon his mouth. There's no queen here. Do you know who I am? I am Santa Yeager, first lady of the bedroom. <laughs> Come here. She led him into a room. There stood a low baby's bed. And in the bed was a baby, a beautiful laughing baby, talking in words that no one could understand. There is no queen on this ranch, said Santa again. 
Look at the king. He has eyes like yours, Webb. Get down on your knees and look at the king. There was a sound of steps outside, and Bud Turner was there at the door. He was asking the same question he had asked almost a year ago. Good morning. Shall I drive those cattle to Barbers, or... He saw Webb and stopped with his mouth open. cried the king, waving his arms. You hear what he says, bud, said Webb Yeager. We do what the king commands. And that is all, except for one thing. When old man Quinn, owner of the Seiko Ranch, went to look at his new English cattle, he asked his new foreman, What's the Nopalito Ranch's mark? X over Y, said Wilson. I thought so said Quinn. But look at that white animal there. She has another mark, a heart with a cross inside. Whose mark is that? And that's our program for today. Listen again tomorrow to learn English through stories from around the world. I'm Jonathan Evans. And I'm Ashley Thompson. 